Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. It's a little lighter crowd here today. The people are playing hooky. Is that on? If you're listening to me and you're going to be listening to the podcast instead, I'm going to do something or say something that you're going to miss. And we're all going to be happy that you're not here, that you can't see it, that you can't experience it. Yeah. How are you this morning? How are you feeling? You feel good? Honestly, you feel good? Okay. That's good to hear. Well, I'm James Lecce. If you don't know who I am, uh, I'm going to be serving you today. Uh, hopefully you enjoy the meal that I put before you. Hopefully you like it. Have you enjoyed the last three meals from this series? Yeah, you're enjoying the David series? Good. I, t- I, I told you, if, if you haven't been here and you're like, what is this guy talking about? You're in the, you came into like the middle of a movie, All right? You know, did you ever get into the middle of a movie and you're like, what the heck is going on? Well, we're in the middle of a series that's going to take us into uh, December, given the fact that we have Pastor Tom coming the end of the month, right? If yet, we haven't seen him in a little while. Uh, so that's going to be great. And uh, as, as Naeem alluded to, Brian Harding. Now, if you don't like, you're like, yeah, I remember hearing that guy. Go on Amazon and go look up his books. The book that he... John, what was the other book that he wrote? I forget the title off the top of my head. I'm bad with titles. No, The Sneezing Jesus, but... Reframing. Yeah, reframing. And if you look at the reviews, the guy has a couple of hundred reviews, like four and a half stars. So that's how I'm... You know, I'm a big reader, and that's how I kind of judge everything. And I read reviews first, and I'm like, this... So this isn't just some fly-by-night guy that's coming in to speak. He, he's a real voice, I think, in in, uh, in the church. And he has something that, you know, a great message for us to hear. If you read Eldridge's book, um, what was that one about? Again, another book. No, not Moving Mountains. What was the one before that? Yeah, The Beautiful Outlaw. This is kind of in the same vein, I would say, along the same lines, if you enjoy that. And some of you are going, I don't know either of those books. I don't know either of these dudes. So that doesn't really help me. Well, we're in part four of our series, and we're just going to open with a word of prayer before we get into this this morning. Well, Lord, Lord, I come before you. Father, I come before you as your humble servant here. Lord, I ask that you would light on fire, Lord, every word. Father, as I studied this text, Lord, I ask that that which you burned inside of me, as John Wesley said, Lord, that it would just really burn out. Father, that people would be receptive and open. There'd be open hearts. There'd be open minds. Lord, that we don't want to be distracted. Lord, we live in an age where there is death by distraction. Father, I ask that everyone here would be able to hear your word. They would see themselves in this story. Speak to hearts. Speak to lives. Father, continue to use this man's life and this series in the lives of people living today. Lord, I thank you that you didn't just impact one man's life 3,000 years ago, that you are still impacting lives today. Father, have your way in this place. I come against all depression that would be in the atmosphere. I come against any fear and anxiety that would try to rack people's minds and bodies. We take your blood over the rest of our time together. Spirit of the living God, have your way with me. Have your way in this place. Surprise us. Surprise us now. Let us see and experience the real living God. We don't want to just hear about God. We want to know you in a real, tangible way. May everyone walk out and say they really touched you today. Do this, Father, in your precious name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 18. I'm just going to get right into the text this morning. Uh, Kind of a lot to cover. I don't have any amazing stories to start out with. No crazy illustrations to start out with. But let's see what unfolds as we walk into another story. Well, let's read the the passage. I'm going to read you nine verses to start. One through nine in chapter 18. We started a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago now in 16. We spent some time, second week in 16. Then last week we spent some time with David and Goliath. And let's see here, our relentless pursuit continues. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Now I have to stop right away. We are, you're going to hear a sermon 
on the friendship of David and Jonathan down the road. So that will take place in the middle of this month. So if you're wondering why is he kind of, I'm not skipping over it. I mean, that's one of the biggest, you know, parts of David's life. So we will delve into that. It's just not really going to be the focal point of my message today. God kind of just branded me with something. And I felt like this is what he deposited in me to get out to you from this passage. Uh, And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. It's very tough for me not to just start preaching right here, but I'm going to hold myself back. Along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And look at these words, friends. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Here is David, right? We saw him in the beginning of his life. What happened in chapter 16? He was anointed. You remember that by the prophet Samuel. And he was anointed in front of his brothers. We said the first week he was number eight. He was the one that was left out in the field. He's the one that's out there. He has his harp. He's hanging out with the sheep. He's the one that was marginalized. He was the one that was excluded. He was the one that his dad said, you're never really going to amount to anything. And Joanne, I should probably insert this right now. Joanne was nice enough to make copies. A lot of people had asked. I obviously don't have time to go into it again. If you weren't here, at least listen. I think the best sermon of the series was the first one. That's just my opinion. I'm the preacher. I don't know. I liked it the best because you got the background story of who David uh, is, was, and where he really came from. You can look at this. This is the chart I use now. I just got this off Google. I didn't make this up on my own. Okay. So if you're like, wow, this is really incredible. I didn't make this up, but you can look at this chart, listen to the sermon and you get really an idea and understanding of who David was and why he was left out in the field. Why his dad doesn't care about him. Why his brothers have this utter disdain for him. It makes a lot more sense. You with me? All right. So that was week one, right? And you see this guy, David is ascending. And right after that, he goes to serve in the palace. He goes from the pasture to the palace because they're looking as they're putting up signs on telephone poles around. What are they? They're looking for. They're looking for a harpist because we said the king was quite distressed. That the Lord, and we went into this, the Lord let an evil spirit, like, you know, allowed Saul to kind of move into the, the, the way of just losing his mind. He lost his mind. He's losing it in every which way. So God allows that to happen. But he needs somebody to come in and play. And that guy just happens to be David. All right. And then last week, as he con- continues to ascend, we see him. We said last week, he's not even in the army and he wins the war. The guy that wasn't in the army, 40 days, this guy Goliath from Gath comes down and he shouts at the Israelites. And this is representative democracy, a battle, representative battle, I should say, where if you fought for one side, whomever won, you won for the whole side. So David wasn't just fighting for himself. He's fighting as the Israelites. He's fighting as them. If, If he wins, they win. So this is a really prosperous time in his life. And then you heard in this passage this morning that we're focused on, what do we see? We see that after David, and I'm not reading that, I skipped over this part of the text in chapter 17, but David, what does he do? He, he takes Goliath's sword, that the enemy's tool, he uses it against him, cuts off the giant's head, and then he takes his little friend, and say hello to my little friend, and he takes his little friend, and he goes to Saul's tent. And he said, hey, look, here it is. Now, here's what I want you to see. And here's what I need you to understand. 
We look at this guy and you say, man, everything is going really well in this guy's life. Well, things are about to change for a long period of time. And it's going to look like to us as the readers, as we're looking over his life, as we're sitting at 30,000 feet and we're kind of watching him, we would think that he's in real trouble. But the problem is he's not in trouble. He's in training. And the problem with many of us in life is, you know what it is? We go through hard times, arduous situations, and we say, God, why why am I in trouble? Why am I in this kind of situation? God is not your safety from refuge. He's your safety net in, in, he's your safety in trouble. He says, listen, I'm not going to keep you. You think you become a Christian. I'm not going to keep you from trouble. You're going to find trouble. But guess what? I'm going to be with you. And understand this too. C.S. Lewis said it. The presence of God is not the absence of trouble. No, no, you didn't get it. Let me say it again. Because you should just be like, wow, that was amazing. When I read that, the the presence of God does not mean the absence of trouble. David is not in trouble here. David is in training. And you're, you may be in training today. You may be going through a situation left you're trying to figure God out. But listen, God says, I'm trying to do some things inside of you. I'm trying to train you up. And you just kind of have to follow me. Now, what did you notice here too? What did you notice about this song that the women are singing? You see here with Saul, right? He has the head, right? He's, he's killed the giant. He's hailed as a hero. Now, obviously, this is hyperbole. I mean, they're, they're, this is real exaggeration. Has David at this point killed 10,000 people? No, I don't know. Saul was a great warrior. Right? We don't, even though he didn't fight Goliath, we know from history, he's a great warrior. Has he killed a thousand? Probably not. But still, you have to see this. The problem with the song wasn't that the song was bad. The problem with the song was Saul didn't mind the first verse. He just hated the second verse. Right? I mean, that's really when you look at it. He doesn't like the second verse in this song. And here is David. What is David's reward for killing the giant? You know what bothered me? And this is why I'm preaching this sermon today. What bothers me is we move past and maybe we go to when David's going to, oh, David's king now. It's 14 years. Listen, it's a long ways off between the point that David's anointed, the point that David becomes the king. Listen to me. We have to look at some of this stuff. And the problem is we skip over. David kills Goliath and we're like, yes. What is David's reward for killing Goliath? You want to know what it is? Are you re- Can you handle this? The reward for killing Goliath was more battles. I read these, I read these chapters maybe 500 times since the song. I just keep reading them, reading them, and I'm going, oh my gosh. I've read this story a lot over the course of my life, but I don't know why I never really looked at it. Even says in chapter 19, there was war again. You know what? Goliath has brothers. And he had to fight those brothers. He had to fight other Philistines. It seems like they're fighting all the time. We think David beats Goliath and there's somebody... David, what are you going to do? This is Channel 2 News. David, you just killed the giant from Gath. What are you going to do? Where are you going? Uh... Disney World, right? Like he's going to go to Disney World or David is going to retire. He's going to the beach and he's going to have a cocktail on the beach. He's done. He killed the giant. It's over. Yeah, game over. No. The reward for killing him was Saul says, I'm going to put you in the military now. You're going to be in charge of over a thousand soldiers and you're going to have to now battle more Philistines. And you know what? You better be careful what you ask God for. You really want God to answer your prayers? You really want God to answer? What are you texting? Oh, she's texting me. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? My wife is texting me something for after the meeting. That's funny. You really, you, you really want God to answer your prayers? Do you really want God to answer your prayers? You really want God to answer your prayers? Sometimes, Josh says, sometimes. Hey, listen, you want that promotion at work? Guess what? You get that promotion, that means you get to manage more people, and people suck. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hey, you want the house? Listen, listen, I'm just, hey, I'm just real. Listen, if you don't know me, this is how I am. I don't care. You want the house? Guess what? Somebody has to clean it. 
You want the car? Somebody has to... I'm sorry. She's like, why are you standing near me? You want the, you want the car? You got to make payments on that car. And this was funny. I, I have a, a former student. He's now a history teacher in, in another district. A really great guy. And he just got engaged, right? So this happened a couple of months ago. And I was kind of laughing. And I saw it on Facebook. Reached out to him afterwards, sent him a, you know, a couple of texts. Hey, it's awesome. Really excited for you. Got that job. Next step in life. You know, and I'm looking at all the pictures they posted of their beautiful engagement. And the sun is shining, Eric, on a day like today. There's not a cloud in the sky. And everything is wonderful. Oh, blissful. Oh, isn't it great? Right? And then you see all the comments. OMG, what a stunning couple. And all of the likes. And you know what I said to myself? I said to myself, yeah, you know what? You know what the prizes for engagement it's marriage and the process of the two becoming one is much harder than the prospect of dun, 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 dun. You know, i'm preaching it's a lot harder for the two to become one than it is to just walk down the aisle you better be careful what you ask for <laughs> So here is David, and he gets more. He gets more responsibility. Even I wrote this down too. Remember we got married? I have to tell you. Remember? That's not, not, not what I meant. You better remember we got married. But I'll never forget. We went on our honeymoon. Can anybody relate to this? I don't even remember what the fight was about. We talked about this recently. It's many moons ago, okay? You really remember? Can you tell me? Because I don't. Do you want to hear what the fight was about? Do you want to know what the fight? Because I want to know. I don't even remember. Tell me what it was about. St. John, I'll just tell everybody. We were in St. John and you wanted to get into an unmarked car as a cab. Yeah. And I said, we don't know that person. Yeah, I didn't know him. I don't want him to drive us around. There's taxi cabs. Let's get into a taxi cab. No, 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 no. This car's better. This car's better. We'll go in the car. I'm about to start this fight all up again right now. Because you don't know I was packing heat. You didn't know that then. Is that really what the fight was about? But I'll never forget that we thought about it and like afterwards I'm like, wow, this marriage thing's pretty tough. This marriage thing's pretty, it's a lot harder than they, 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 they told me at the altar. Pastor Forseth married us and he told me there's going to be mountains and valleys. I'm like, dude, there's going to be a lot more mountains and valleys. And I'm like, okay, you get the point. All right, so back to the text, focus. All right. We go to verse, verses 10 and 11 now. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. What would a sermon on this text be? Without a real spear. Wow. A real spear. I'm going hunting after the meeting today. If you're wondering. Does anybody want to check this out? Just to tell the audience, Bob. Can you let them know that this is a real spear? Careful now. I don't want you to get hurt during a sermon, right? But check that out. Tell, tell them. Is that a real spear? This is a real spear. Jim, you're a hunter. No, I'm scared to give this to you. my Right? But this is a real spear. Right? This is real. This scene really happened. There really was a time in the life of David where he's sitting there and he's on the harp. What did we say? He's, his singing career has, has gone to a new level. He's an amazing musician. He's there in front of the king. Did you know six times between chapters 18 and 20, Saul will try to take his life? Six times. So, first of all, does the king always sit there with a... Isn't that a little scary and intimidating? That you are playing your harp, even if he's not going to throw it at you? But why does the dude have the... Why does he have the spear? Why can't you hold something else? Can you put the spear down? Because it's making me a little uncomfortable. Can you hold something else in your hand? I'll give you one of my sheep. I don't know. Do you want to hold the harp for a little while? Is that going to calm you down? What's the deal with this thing? So it's kind of weird when you see this. And here is David, and it's wild. David is playing the harp. This is the same David that we just read about and talked about last week, who's an amazing warrior, right? This is the same guy who is bad with a slingshot. You don't want to mess with David. 
He's bad with a slingshot. He's a warrior, but he's also pretty bad on the harp, right? He's bad on both. And there Saul is with this distressing spirit, and he can't function unless David comes in and plays him some music. You know what I thought about? We wouldn't know anything about this in our day, that we will try to find any noise we can, anything we can to distract us from being with ourselves. Think about it. All the times that we are looking to things, I don't want to be left with myself. I either have to put music on, I have to distract myself with anything that will keep me from being with myself, from my thoughts and my feelings. It's just one of the ways the enemy works. The enemy wants to keep us distracted all the time. If I can keep them distracted, oh, I can keep them off base. I can keep them at bay. So here he is, and the hand of God is leaving Saul, but at the same time, the hand of God is strong on David's life. You see one person ascending and the other person is descending all at the same time. And Saul can't take it. Now, can I ask you for a second? Let me ask somebody. Let me ask one of the kids. Girls, let me ask you. If you had to pick a weapon, you have two choices. Ready? You either get to take the spear, or we don't have a harp on the stage. We had the harpist two weeks ago. Imagine there's a harp right there. And so this is like Hunger Games. Any Hunger Game fans? How many of you are like, no? I thought it was pretty good. Okay, anyway. So imagine you had to pick. Which weapon are you going to pick? Are you going to take the harp? Or are you going to take the spear? Julia, you want to go first? You look like you're, you're on the edge of your seat. I'm on the edge. I'm, I'm waiting. Go ahead. What do you want? What weapon do you want? The you want the harp? Wait a second. Is that your answer because we're in church? I want you to tell us the truth because we can handle the truth. What do you want, Caleb? Oh my gosh, Caleb, that was a very good answer. Give them a hand. That was a pretty good answer. What did I hear back there? Wait, what, what? Go ahead, what? I see, what? Oh, he said I want the harp too because he can calm him, he can calm him down. Oh, interesting. Very interesting when you think about that. Very smart kids. Well, you think about that and here's what I want you to notice what it says in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Are you scared that I'm holding the spear? <laughs> Who wants the spear? You want the spear? And it was my, my niece's birthday. We just celebrated that last night. So I would let you hold this at the end. I'm going to let you hold this. Is it all right, mom, if I let her hold it? Okay, great. Now, here's what I want you to notice in verse 11. Look what I, look what I, I underlined this for you. Let's get serious now. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now, first of all, if I'm picking a weapon, I'm taking the spear, okay? I'm not taking the harp, I'm taking the spear. And I imagine most of you adults would probably say the same exact thing. But what's wild here in this situation, what's wild here in this story is, you would think after the first time, doesn't logic tell you if you're David and you're strumming away on the harp, it says he has his hand on the harp, wouldn't logic tell you to get out of the way and get out of dodge if that happened one time, but the text tells us it happened twice. You ready for my, you ready now? Can you handle this? Are you ready for this? Which leads me to believe that after Saul tried to kill him, David went back and played for him again. Six times. Who does that, friends? Who continues to play on the harp while somebody is throwing spears at you? I'll tell you who. Somebody who knows where his protection comes from. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my rock, He is my shelter, my God in Him shall I trust. I'm going to protect you from the enemy, the snares of the enemy. I got your back, don't worry about it. My feathers are going to cover you. You can abide under the shadows of my wing. Hey David, guess what? A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but guess what? It's not coming your way. 
It's not going to happen to you. Do you understand? You're missing. Do you understand what David understood about his God? Do you see that David understood where his protection came from? That after the first one, he stayed there? Which leads me to believe, friends, if you can understand this, that there had to have been another hand in the room. There was another hand in the room. Saul had his hand on the spear. David has his hand on the harp. And you can't tell me at close distance, say David is here and say Saul is over here. You can't tell me that it is a miracle that somehow Saul misses him in these three chapters six times. Which leads me to believe that God's hand was in that room. Which leads me to believe that you can relate to this. That there have been times in your life where God's hand was on your life. And you don't know how it happened. But God said, no, not him, not her, not now, not ever. That I got your back. Do you realize God has your back today? Look at the situations in your life. Look what God has saved you from. He saved you from hell and high water. He saved you from all different circumstances. That some of you are supposed to be dead here today. You should be dead. I went back in all the stories in my life. Think about it in your life. I just went back in my life. Hey, remember the time we were in Virginia? That awful place? Hey, remember that time? You know know where I'm taking you right now? Day by day. Day by day. How old was I? I don't even remember. Four years old, and we were at this place, this conference in Virginia, where they wanted to torture kids. I don't know about adults, but I was a kid, it was torture, like cold water, the food was bad, it wasn't good. But we were there, and I'll never forget, we're in this huge pool, like this Olympic-sized pool. And I don't know, Pastor Joe is in the deep end, and he's with my siblings, and they're over there, and I'm just kind of frolicking on the side, outside the pool, hanging out like a four-year-old, right, doing my thing. And somehow, I jump in the pool, I get in the pool. I'm in the shallow end of the pool. He's at the other end of the pool. Something inside of him turns around, right? And you knew something had happened. And I'll never forget it. He races over. I mean, I'm four, but he raced over. I didn't take in any water. How did this man all of a sudden in the deep end turn around and just know that I was in the shallow end because I'll tell you why because God had his back and God had my back and God said the one kid that is most unlikely to serve me and be a preacher and a pastor in a church I'm going to take that kid and I got a calling for that kid and one day you're going to see him up in a pulpit which is crazy which is mind boggling but that's what God kind of did And I imagine for you, you parents, and you can look at your own kids, and you have your own stories. God has your back. There was another hand in the room, and there were two holes. Now, I can't make holes in this place. Look how beautiful this place is. You want this? Let's put the spear down. Yeah, put the spear down. Everybody's afraid. Yeah, we don't don't want a hole in the wall. You know that I'm not allowed to hunt. Every people hunting here. I'm not allowed to go hunting. Not allowed to do anything but preach. I'll tell you what you can do, James. You can preach. Hey, thanks a lot. There are two holes in the wall. Now follow this. Look, look. Right? There are two holes. He escaped twice. Twice this happened. Six times total. But in this part of the story, there are two holes in the wall. So what I want you to see is the two holes were a message to the enemy, you can't have this one. Were a message for all time. Do you think, when were those holes fixed? When were those holes in the wall fixed? I don't know when they were fixed, but I know they were a constant reminder of God's providence and protection over the life of David. If I, you can't see them right now, I'm not talking literally, but there are holes around some of you right now. There are holes in the wall. If I go to your house, I guarantee you there are holes in the wall because the enemy has tried to come and steal. He's tried to kill and he's tried to destroy because he wants your house and he wants everything. He doesn't want some things. He wants to take it all. But God is sovereign and God knows who you are. And God, again, because maybe you missed it, God has your back and God is protecting you. Are we realizing that? Do we see that in our lives? Are we looking to God? Are we thanking God for that? 
We should be. All the times that he has come and he has protected us. You, that's why. Why do you think David could stand face? face he's with the enemy, really. I mean, he doesn't look at him in the beginning as an enemy. Saul's the same one that said earlier. He said he loved David. That's what the text says. He loved him. How do you go, by the way, from loving somebody that, and we're going to get to it in a second, loving somebody that much to despising them and hating them? Isn't that what Saul does? But David was able to go to, to look at his enemy and not give up ground. Eventually, yeah, he does leave. He does, but he stood, he kept his hand on the harp and he kept playing. Do you realize how we're supposed to handle the enemy? Let me give you a picture of this in illustration. I don't, I don't reuse illustrations very much. If you've heard me preach over the years, I don't do it much. I'm using one that I used at a retreat many years ago. Because I just looked at the text and I said, how do I not use this? And I want to show you a picture. Some of you may remember, men, a lot of you women, you weren't there. Okay, it would be weird if you were there at a men's retreat. All right? And here's what I want to show you a picture of, okay? What you see before you is a mountain lion, right? Isn't that a pretty menacing picture? You see that picture? Is that picture a little menacing? Does anybody want to go toe-to-toe with a mountain lion? No, I wouldn't think so. Did you know, now look, reading up on this, this is interesting. Mountain lions are regarded as the number one human predator. Number one in the United States, mountain lions. Got the cops here, that's what I'm talking about, protecting us. Cops are here, yes. Okay, number one predator, mountain lions. Naturalist Craig Childs came in contact at a national park out west with a mountain lion. He's just kind of chilling out. He's doing his thing and out of nowhere. Now he knew, he's a nat- he knew how to handle the situation. Let me tell you, this is what he wrote. This is what he wrote. He said, mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, eight times their size. Their method, watch this, attack from behind, clamp onto the spine at the base of the prey's skull and snap it. Oh, that's a nice picture. Kids, you enjoy that? The top few vertebrae are the target, housing respiratory and motor skills that cease instantly when the cord is cut. Mountain lions have stalked people for miles. You know what you're supposed to do if you ever come and I need, sorry, I need it one more time. I have to, because I don't have this. Well, you know what the guy did? Pretend this is a knife. He knew if you turn your back to a mountain lion and try to run, you're done. You're finished. There's no possible way you're going to survive. What the mountain lion tries to do is intimidate you. So the mountain lion, and this is what he said, he pulled out his knife and the mountain lion, so he's here and the mountain lion was trying to get behind him, but he knew I can't let him get behind me. So the mountain lion kept going. The mountain lion went the other way, started running the other way, but he stood his ground. He knew if I turn around and run, I'm done. Friends. When the enemy comes at us, we need to stand our ground. No weapon formed against you is going to prosper. That's what the Bible says. You are not to run. You are to go back at the enemy, right? Not in your own power, but in the power of what God has given us. And you are to take promises. You are a child of God. Did you hear that song this morning? You're a child of God. And there are certain promises. And there are things that we need to lean on. When the enemy comes at us, you stand your ground. You hold up your sword. And you go back at him in the name of Jesus. You take the blood over your family. You take the blood of your house. You take the blood of your body. That's what we're called to do. We have to be tenacious. Don't turn around and run. It's not a time to run. It's a time to go back at the enemy as he tries to take us out. That's what David does. He realizes, I can't run. Now let me stop. I'm going to turn the sermon now. I'm going to do a, what is it, a one eight? I'm just going to flip the whole sermon around. I don't usually do this. This isn't my normal three-point sermon, okay? I'm going to change it up a little bit. This is just how I... I scrapped it. I had something and then I kind of pulled it apart and I changed it a little bit because I feel like this is what needs to be said for the rest of the message. You ready for this? Let me ask you a question now. As you look at Saul, how crazy he is. And by the way, I don't want to get too technical. One commentator, I thought this was really wild. One commentator notes, it's so interesting that you see that the Bible will say early on in, in, in Saul and David encounters 
that th- this distressing spirit came on Saul, right? You've seen that? What's interesting is the scholar says, after a while, the, the, the writer doesn't even talk about it anymore, as if to tell us it's all the time now. He went from the dark, these covert attempts in the beginning, where it's just maybe the two of them, only a couple of other people know that he's trying to kill them, kill him, and then it's wide open. Then he can't handle it. He can't control it. And he's going to do anything that he can to kill him. Now, let me ask you, who is Saul fighting? Who is Saul fighting in this? Who's Saul fighting in this story? Right here. Who is Saul fighting? He's fighting David. Who said David? Technically, is fighting David. It's too obvious. Why would I ask? He's fighting himself. The greatest battles, listen to me. This will be one of the best things I give you the whole sermon. Ready? The greatest battles that both I want to preach on David. I want to continue. But I felt like God was saying, you got to finish up on Saul on this. Because there's so much Saul in all of us. The greatest battles that David and Saul ever fought did not stand in front of them. They resided within them. Let me say it again. The greatest battles, the biggest things they had to come up against. David, it's not just Goliath. It's the things that were inside of him. It was the battle that was within. That was the real enemy. That was the thing that David was up against. That was the thing Saul was up against. I told you, I want to be a man after God's own heart. I know a lot of you do too. You want to be a man after God's or a woman after God's own heart, right? But we can't finish up on David until we deal with Saul because there's so much Saul in us. And let me tell you, how many of us can relate? There's something in our lives that we're trying to kill that God's trying to use. God was trying to use David in Saul's life. And here is Saul trying to kill it. He's trying to kill that which God says is going to help you down the road. He's winning battles for him. He's helping with the army. He's doing all these things. But Saul is trying to kill him. It's the battle that happens within. How many of you remember the story of Columbine almost 20 years ago? Remember the story of Columbine? April 20th, 1999. Some of you maybe are too young. You don't remember it. Probably the worst school shooting in American history. Columbine, Colorado, where uh, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris went into that high school, Columbine High School. They killed 24 students, one teacher, I think over 12 people were injured in that event. And what was interesting is I read an article recently that was just, it blew my mind from one of the parents. And I want to read you a little bit. Uh, Her name is Susan Klebold, the mother of Dylan Klebold. And she talked about from her perspective how people perceived her to be an accomplice to the event that actually happened. Because they said 83% of people that responded like in, in, you know, in a, a survey afterwards, they blamed it on the parents. They said the parents did not teach their kids, those two kids, those parents, didn't teach them proper values and morals. It was their fault. And she says some very poignant words. She said, Dylan was a product of my life's work, but his final actions implied that he never had been taught the fundamentals of right and wrong. There's no way to atone for my son's behavior. And here's the part that I'm putting up for you so you can see this. In raising Dylan, I taught him how to protect himself from a host of dangers, lightning, snake bites, head injuries, skin cancer, smoking, drinking, drug addiction, reckless driving, even carbon monoxide poison. It never occurred to me the gravest danger to him as it turned and as it turned out to many others might come from within i got goosebumps when i read that the first time i know it's chilling to read that how true is that the baby is clapping josh i thought you were clapping at first i said that's a weird part in the sermon to clap what isn't that really i mean isn't that crazy here's a mom and she's spot on we're always looking out there and you know what i want to do right now for the rest of this sermon for the next hour and 20 minutes I want us to look in the mirror. I want us to look in the mirror. Can we look at ourselves? Can I give you what Saul's real issue is here? Can I give you the issue we don't talk about in church? Are you ready for this? This is the issue we don't talk about in church. Can I break this down in Hebrew for you? Good, because don't, you don't really care, but I'm going to do it anyway. And here's what's interesting. When you look at verse 11, no, I'm sorry. When I go back to 9, so Saul I David from that day forward. You know what that literally means in Hebrew? It means in Hebrew... From that day forward, he envied David. Can we talk about the green monster? Can we talk about envy for a little while? Can we talk about envy? Because again, it's an issue that we don't really hear much about in the church, right? Do you hear a lot of sermons about envy? Do you? I'm asking. Maybe I don't think, you know, 
I'm not saying you've never heard one, but it's not a topic that's talked about a lot. And it's a topic that needs to be discussed in the church because it's so pervasive. It's everywhere. Envy. This literally means that from this day forward, again in Hebrew, what this really connotes, from this day forward, he literally put envy on and that's how he looked at David. Every time he looked at David from this point forward, there was envy that was in his heart. It wasn't the battle that was out there. He really wasn't fighting David. He was fighting something inside of himself. Oh, can we go a little bit deeper today? Can I have a couple more minutes to go a little deeper into this? So let's talk about what this envy thing really means. What is it? First of all, let's define it. Envy is, we keep it simple to distill it, is wanting someone else's life. In Latin, it it literally means malice. That you have malice for someone else. You want to see their harm. You know what it really is? It's not that you dislike them. You resent the person. You don't just dislike them. You resent them because they have something that you don't have. Or they have something that maybe you'll never have. You rejoice when they weep and you weep when they rejoice. That's envy. And it's crazy because it's one of those sins, again, that we don't talk a lot about. We kind of hide it. We put it to the side. It's not real. There's a great story. It's a legend of an old saint. Comes upon two men. And they're arguing. Who's the greatest? They're arguing. Who's greater? Right? And this wise saint says to them, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give both of you Whatever you get, one wish, whatever you want, you can have. But here's the only stipulation. Once you get that, your enemy gets double of whatever you get. Right? So he asks the first guy. He says, all right, what do you want? Guy thinks and he goes, if I say I want riches, my adversary is going to get twice as much as me. If I say fame, my adversary, he's going to be twice as famous as I am. He says, oh, I know. I got it. I got it. I know what it is. He says, I want to be blind in one eye. <laughs> Took some of you a second. Isn't that, isn't that envy, though? Isn't that envy how gross it is? That's what we do. We look at it and say, man, and it, this is what is happening in the life of Saul. He's letting this envy. He wants to hold on to his kingdom, his kingship. And he says, I'll do whatever it takes. He's going in a downward spiral. But he says, I'll do whatever it takes to hold on to that which I need in my life, that which I want. And in the process of doing that, he's wrecking his life. Do you ever try to control a situation and you try to stop something from happening? And then you do something and it just makes the situation worse? No, none of you. I'm the only one in the room that's probably ever done that. But we do that all the time. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. Look what the writer of Proverbs says about... This is a sermon you should be... I, I should expect that you're quiet for the rest of the sermon. Because when, you, when we talk about this topic, no one wants... This is not something you go, oh, that's not too bad. It's pretty bad. But we don't like to, we don't like to admit it. So we go back to look what the writer of, of Proverbs says. Right of Proverbs says in 1430, a heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Ooh, it rots the bones. It rots our bones. Don't think it's innocuous that it doesn't have a real deleterious. It has a real strong negative impact on our lives. It's tearing us down piece by piece and it hides itself. The top book that I could find everywhere I went researching this, the top book, if you want a great book, he's not a Christian. A literature professor at Northwestern University. I listened to him. By the way, here's a John Eldridge and I found this out from a couple of women in the church. He did. I listened to it. I, I pulled out a, a, a couple of things here that I thought were really good. He did a four-part series. Each uh, part was like 30 minutes. Yeah, very good. And he talks about envy with his son. And uh, it's quite wonderful. If you just want to Google John Eldridge and, and envy, you can hear more on the topic than I could ever include in one sermon. But And he even mentioned this guy's name. And other people, I knew this already, had mentioned this guy, Joseph Epstein. He wrote a book called Envy. Not a Christian. Secular. Brilliant. Says he doesn't even believe in God. I don't care because what he wrote was so true and so applicable to our lives as Christians. Anybody. And he talks about it, and just to kind of summarize a few of the things that he talks, he says, you know what? It's one thing to be found guilty of being lustful, prideful, to be gluttonous. Did you know envy? And I want to do a series on this at some point. Allow me to do a series on the seven deadly sins. Do you want to? No, really, wouldn't that be a great series? 
Let's sign up. Who's, si- who's going to sign up for that? I'm just taking a gander at hand. So when you're not here on one of those Sundays, I'm going to call you out. Right? So, so it's number two on the list. And this is what's wild. He says, you know what? You, nobody wants to be accused of being prideful, right? You don't want people to say that about you. But there's something about when somebody says you're envious. Oh, his words, he says, there's nothing more humiliating than have to admit to somebody you're envious. Because it's, it, it, you're, you feel so small, so shriveled, so ungenerous. Isn't that good? Powerful. I want you to, can I ask you now? What about looking at your life? And I'm looking at my life and trying to do some work on the inside and, and say, where in my life do I see stress fractures? Is it possible that envy is at the bottom of some of the problems that I have? Is it possible for you that envy is that you don't believe me? Let me give you an example. What I see a lot of times as a minister, and, and Pastor Joe, you can speak for this on, on your own when you do your own sermon on envy. But what's interesting to me is we always, um, you hear a lot about people, I think there's a lot of self-pity. Can I be honest? There's a lot of self-pity. And people look at their lives and they're like, look at my life, how terrible it is. And nobody else has it as bad as I do. And there's just like this self-loathing. And then just like, you like have this pity party, right? Isn't that a pervasive form of envy? Because we're looking at everyone else's life and we're saying they have it. And by the way, don't listen to me. If you walk out of here and say envy is not an issue, envy is affecting every single person in this room. Because if it's not, I want to talk to you after the meeting and I'm going to hook you up with Pastor Linda and she can straighten you out. Not me. She'll straighten you out. I'm serious. So everybody in this room, it's a problem for everybody. Different mentality. What? Victim mentality. Good, Pastor Joe. I like that. But it's crazy. And you you think about it. We have to look at it. And and I love this too. And this is one of the things I pulled out from one of the podcasts. I thought it was interesting. There was a, a study that was done on social media. How many of you have social media? You have a Facebook account, Instagram. Be careful raising your hand right now. That's what I'm going to tell you. So there was a a study that was done in 2014. This was uh, out of Germany. And they looked at people that go on social media. Get this. One out of three people, when you go on social media afterwards, you feel worse. One out of three people feel worse. You know what was the, the worst part? The worst part when you go on Facebook or they said Instagram, people that post their holiday pictures. Oh, look at our little family. How beautiful everyone is. Even Fido the dog, right? He has no issues. Everyone's perfect. I went over this in the Jacob series, but I have to talk about it again because it's so real. Or even how we compare. And this is the other thing Eldred said in one of the podcasts. He said, we live, get this, ready? He says, we live in the culture of the offended self. We're so offended at other people. I'm not done with my offense thing. Don't worry, you're going to get a sermon on offense and I got a great illustration. I'm going to rock your world, right? But that's not going to be right now. But we live in the culture of the offended self. We're always offended at other people and we're offended at God because God hasn't given us what he's given other people. How many people say that, right? How come I'm not as gifted as she is? How come he's more gifted? God, how come they have all these gifts? How come I'm a one-talent person? I don't want one talent. I want five. I want ten. I want more. It's not fair, God. I told you it was going to be a quiet sermon for the rest of the time. Because this is where we are. This is, this is who we are. You want to, and, and, and you have to ask yourself questions. And there's even more on this. How about this? I mean, I, thinking about this is wild. How, and I know nobody in here would ever do this. It's your birthday. And you go on Facebook and you want to see how many likes and how many comments you got compared to Susie. Oh, Susie got 147. I only got 51. They must like Susie more than me. They don't like me. You've never done that before, right? No one's ever done that. No one's ever counted. How, looked, how many people like my picture? How come more people don't like my picture? Is there something wrong with my family? Is there something wrong with me? How come more people aren't commenting? And you know, I'm, come on, I'm preaching. I told you I'm preaching reality. You know, it's real. And then we put these fake, right? And I said it to, listen, we put all these fake, it, my sister-in-law, what do you call, where is she? Where is she? She's inside. What does she call it, Megan? She calls it, I love it. And she probably didn't invent this. I guess people, like, she calls it, she's always like, yeah, I was on fake book. And I'm like, that's good. Fake book. That's so good. It's so real. It's not reality. It's fake. It's fake. 
You fight with your spouse just like I do. You fight with your kids just like I do. Things aren't perfect, but we put this picture out there of everything is so perfect. And there's envy and there's comparison. Can I tell you another thing? When you start to do that, do you know what you're doing? And Eldred said this, and I love it. You're opening yourself up to you. When you put this picture out here of, of, of all this fake stuff, and you try to present yourself in a light that's not real, you are opening up the doors for the enemy to come in. You're allowing envy to come at you. There's not only envy that's in you, you're allowing envy to come at you from other people. Why would we open ourselves up to that? Why are we, why do we have to parade around and try to pretend we're something we're not? We all do it, but why are we doing that? That's the question. Get off your soapbox, pal. So what's striving? Look at the things that you envy. Henry Nouwen, Catholic priest, said, look at the things you envy and you'll find out who you are. Look at the things you envy and you find out who you are. Getting to the end of my sermon. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Stay with me. Don't fall asleep. But the problem is, when you look at this, look at Saul's life. It eventually, it boils down to, when you see this downward spiral, it's like an addiction. That you'll do anything that you can to have this. And he allows, yeah, he has pride, and he allows envy. Did you know, by the way, envy is really the first sin that ever... And I know you may say, Lucifer, when you look in the Bible, and you see the passages in the Old Testament, yeah, there's pride that's in Lucifer's heart, but the first thing is really envy. He looked at God, and he looked at God's throne, and he says, I want that. That's what I want. I must have that. The envy that was there, it's everywhere. Again, it's all over the place. And let me ask you, what, here's the question, the big question. What is it that we want or we think is more important than God in our lives? Think about that for a second. What is more important than God? Because that is ultimately the root of our misery. That's the root right there. That's the foundation. I can pull that root out and all of us have it. We're looking to something and we're trying to find something. And then we get so envious that somebody has something that we don't. It's the root of all of our misery. How many of you know the names? I said C.S. Lewis before. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Right? How many of you enjoy their stuff? All right, yeah. If you've never read any of their stuff, hey, I don't know, I talk about them all the time. You're like, this guy talks about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis all the time. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, I do, and I'll continue to do it because it's really good stuff. Well, did you know that Tolkien envied Lewis? Let me show you a picture if you've never seen them before. Where's my picture? Lebo, what happened? Michael, where is my picture? I want my picture. Is it, uh, so I'm putting up a picture. You can see it, Lewis and, and Tolkien. This is what's wild. Tolkien envied Lewis. Would you ever think that? Tolkien, in my estimation, you could just put up, Mike, just put up the picture of uh, Tolkien and Lewis. It's like towards, towards the end. Keep going. And uh, it, interesting that Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, if you've never watched the Lord of the Rings movie, if you haven't shown them to your kids, you're an awful parent. You're horrible, <laughs> horrendous, right? You failed parenting. What'd you say? What? Well, I don't know what happened. Jeez, I don't know. It was in there. It doesn't matter. I put, I, I put two in there. It's probably the other one. That's fine. You get the idea. So here is Lewis is envied by Tolkien. And what was wild to me is they set out in 1937. 1937, they set out. They said, we're going to write the best fiction the world has ever seen. We're going to write some of the best fiction the world has ever seen. It's, I mean, pretty, wow. That's a, that's a big undertaking. They started out. And Lewis is churning books out. He's, he's my favorite, right? He's the man now. He's churning out Space Trilogy, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. He churns out the screw tape letters. He does all seven books, the, ta- the Narnia, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, which are pretty good movies too. Not as good as Lord of the Rings. The books are okay. Not as good as Lord of the Rings, all right? But he's churning this stuff out. There is Tolkien who is so envious of him because he spends over 30 years writing and rewriting the same book. You didn't probably know this. Did you know when Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, he rewrote every chapter almost 10 times? 
almost 10 times. He stopped writing it in 1944. They set out in 1937. Tolkien looks at his friend. He's writing all these books. He's getting all this acclaim. He's like, look at this guy. This is amazing. How come I can't do this? You can start to come up. That's fine. And he's, he's writing, but he stops in 19, in the mid 1940s. He stops writing Lord of the Rings because he said, I have no artistic ability. He had writer's block. Are you kidding me? He stops and he says, I just can't do this anymore. He thinks he's done. And he says, everything I've tried to write, it's never, ever good enough. But then one night, you know, you know what breaks him free of the envy? He writes this in his autobiography. He talks about how he, he had a dream one night. God, listen to me. God speaks. And sometimes you can have dreams and you can have visions. Do you believe that? I serve a God that still speaks. I serve a God that wants to speak to us right now. And there he is. He had a dream. This Oxford, very put together, well-educated professor and writer, right? He has a dream. And he wakes up from the dream and he writes out this whole dream of what happened and he writes a book and it becomes a short story and I had it in my PowerPoint but it's not there in the picture of it the name of the book is Leaf by Niggle Leaf by Niggle and the character Niggle this character this, this, this guy is commissioned by the town in which he lives he is to paint this mural on the side of town hall that's what the whole, the whole story is about and the town is going to pay him and there is Niggle. He spends weeks on it. And his whole idea is he has this picture in his mind that I want to, I want to I, I draw this huge, beautiful tree. He spends days on it. Then the days, days turn into weeks. And the weeks turn into months. And the months turn into years. And after a couple of years, the people from the town that put him, that commissioned him to do this, they come and they look at what he has drawn. And all there is on the mural is this big leaf at the bottom. That's it. This one big leaf. And they're like, we paid you for this? This is all you've done in all these years? This is all you could draw? You have one little leaf on the page here? What happened? We didn't pay you for that. We paid you to... Here it is. Go to my next one. We paid you to draw something. You can go right there. Just, I got it. No, that, right there. I, we paid you to draw something amazing. Are you kidding me? He winds up dying, right? So he dies. The main character dies. And this is what's fascinating. Mary, I owe you. Good job. This is what he says. He's on a train and he's headed towards paradise. I, if you haven't read these guys, please get into some of their works. These are saints from the past. The people I live with, they help me so much. Can I, can I just stop my story and just be real with you right now? I feel like I'm supposed to say it to you. I dealt with the same envy issue that these two guys dealt with. I'm going to be real and honest with you. Do you know what it was like for me about 10 years ago to have Tom Richter come into our church and preach? I told some of my close confidants, close friends, do you know what it's like to get up after Tom Richter preaches? I have to get up and preach after this guy? Are you kidding me? That's Again, I'm just, I'm keeping it real. You want me to preach after Richter preaches? Get somebody else. Send me somebody. And I, I'm being, I, I say to my, I say, God, out of all the places in the, you sent Tom Richter to Middle Island, New York, the middle of nowhere? I had to pray against that big time. Let me tell you something. At first it was hard. It was real hard. But then as time went on, I wouldn't let the enemy get in the way of a relationship. And let me tell you something. I don't know if you know this. There's no bigger fan in this whole church of Tom Richter's than me. I cherish that man. I cherish his gift. And that's part of the problem. We look at other people that are so gifted. We ought to be praising their gifts. You, want, you know what to do? You're to praise not what you don't have, but to give credit and be grateful for what you do have. And I'd say to myself, God, I'd, I'm, why am I trying to compare to myself, to myself to somebody that, hey, I'm not supposed to be. I'm a different speaker. I don't, you don't want me to do that. And I would not let comparison and envy continue to get in the way of my relationship with that man. I love him. I adore him. I see his gifting. It's a, he's immensely talented. We'd sit there and go over sermons. How many of you saw the movie? Mozart. Can I just preach a little bit in my notes, whatever? And, and, and the movie Mozart. You remember the movie Mozart? I'd meet with Tom and Mozart was about Beethoven, right? And Beethoven, there was this guy Salieri. He was like the head of the court and the head of music. 
And this guy, he was so jealous of Mozart. There's a great scene. You know the scene I'm talking about? There's a scene like towards the end of the movie, uh, maybe in the middle of the movie. And the wife comes in because Beethoven can't get a job. And the wife comes in, remember that? Can't get, the, you know, and here, this is his stuff. And then Salieri goes, are, are these copies? And she goes, no, no, these are originals. And after that, he, t- he takes the, he goes into his, pri- he doesn't even talk to her, goes into his private room and he says, he says to God, you and I are enemies from this point on. And he throws the papers in the air. You know what? We have an opportunity when you're comparing and you're looking and envying somebody else and something that they have that you don't have. I have the same exact opportunities that you do, but I'll tell you what, I'm not letting envy is the, and listen, you get something out of pride, right? You're prideful for a little while. It feels good. You lust for a little while. It feels good. Envy from the moment you taste it, Joe Epstein says, it gives you nothing back. There's nothing that's gratifying about it. Think about the times you've been envious. You get nothing out of it. Anyway, back to leave by needle. So the guy's on it. You with me? The guy, I'm, I'm, I swear I'm at the end. He's on a train. I'm ki- cutting some stuff out. He's on a train to paradise. And he's on this train. And he tells the train, the guy that's trying, stop the train. He sees up on the top of this hill, a beautiful tree. And this is what, this is what he writes. This is what set Tolkien free. He said, before him stood the tree. His tree finished. The tree that, that, that he couldn't finish while he was on earth. He's now in heaven. He sees it. Its leaves opening. Its branches growing and bending in the wind that Nigel had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. I didn't put it up, but Tolkien went on to say, he said that in his autobiography, there's a real tree and someday everybody is going to see it. There's a story I'm trying to tell. I have to get it out. And someday I will. Someday everybody is going to see that story. What am I trying to set you free from? I'm trying to tell you, even if it doesn't happen now, what is Tolkien saying? One day, the deepest desire of your heart, the deepest thing that you want, one day, it will be so, one day, that will ultimately happen. It may not happen now, but it can happen in the future because of who Jesus is and what he came to do. You see that? And then finally, just in closing, as we bring it to the table, as we bring it here, do you realize what Jesus did? He did the exact antithesis of envy. Do you realize that, you know, when you look at people and you go, man, they don't, they don't deserve that. How could God give them that great job, right? How could God give them that house? How could God give, you know, her that spouse, him that's whatever it is. And we say that, you know what Jesus says? You know what? They don't deserve it. And isn't that great? They don't deserve it. God says through Jesus's life, I'm going to give you more than you ever deserved because I love you that much. Do you realize what Jesus did when he was in heaven? He made himself of no reputation. He left. He's at the right hand of God and he left all that. Man, I'd love to go into, we're going to hear about it later on, but you look at David and Jonathan's life, the, the real way to overcome envy too, you look what Jonathan did. Jonathan, who's supposed to be the heir to the throne, he's supposed to be the next king. He stripped himself of his robe and the, the robe meant status. He takes off his robe. Jesus is the greater Jonathan. Jesus was the perfect Jonathan. He stripped himself of all reputation and says, you know what? You don't deserve paradise. You don't deserve heaven, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Isn't God great? So friends, in closing, I told you, I mentioned it before. You need to have gratitude. Thank God. How do we over... Thank God for what you do have. Thank God for the health that you do have. Thank God for the job that you do have. Thank God for the house that you do have. Thank God for the car that you do have. And if there's envy that's in your heart, here's what I want you to do. Call it what it is. Stop hiding. Pastor Linda has said it from the pulpit a million times since I was a kid. Bring things into the light. When you bring things into the light, that's when freedom comes. That's when bondage can be broken. And you may, listen, there may be a situation, God may be leading you as you're listening to this message this morning. And there may be real envy in your heart. And God may say, you know what? I want you to talk to that person. I want you to talk to them and bring it to them. I don't know, but that may be there. 
You have to ask God about it. But I'm just trying to bring to your attention what is real and what is rampant in and out of the church. Envy and comparison. And it is a bigger problem than we would think. And we need to deal with what Eldred says, the culture of the offended self. We're constantly offended. Lord, but we don't want to be Saul, Father. There's Saul in all of us. There's envy, there's pride, there's jealousy. There's, Lord, there's so a myriad of things that live inside of us. Father, may we really go after the battle within. Lord, may we really do the work that's inside. Father, I ask that your life that lives inside of us, it's the exchange life. Lord, that you would do something inside of us, Father. We can't make it happen by willpower, but by the power of your spirit, you would change us and you would rearrange us, Lord. Lord, deal with this the elephant in the room. Deal with the green monster. Deal with the envy that is in our lives. Lord, don't let us go another day without addressing it. The comparison, Lord, there is no place for it in the the kingdom of God. May we call it what it is. May we stop hiding from it. May we real, be real people. May we come out. May we see. May we break agreements that we have made to. Father, I ask for that right now. Lord, that power would hit this room. That we would break agreements right now that we have made concerning this whole issue of envy and comparison and jealousy. Lord, and we'd look to you and thank you for what you have given us. And Lord, there is coming a day, like Tolkien said, all the deepest desires of our hearts oh Lord those things are going to come to be they're going to come to fruition amen thank you Lord thank you thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast for more resources visit us at chccny.com